This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication, which is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Andrew Revkin, award-winning environmental journalist, author, educator, musical composer, and performer. Andy spent 21 years writing for the New York Times and created the famous Dot Earth blog. He then spent time writing for ProPublica. He now is the strategic advisor for environmental and science journalism at the National Geographic Society. His new book is being released in May. It's called Weather, an illustrated history from cloud atlases to climate change. It's co-authored with his wife. Andy, you've got a new book coming out May 1st of 2018, just next month. Uh, start off and tell us about that. Yeah, this is my fourth book, uh, third one that really centers on something related to climate and humans. And it's, uh, it's an illustrated history of our relationship with the climate system. So it's this publisher, uh, Sterling, they've done lines of books. Uh, they're illustrated books of the evolution of an idea or practice. There's the law book, the engineering book, the medicine book, and they circled me a few years ago to do the earth book, but it was a big, long project and I couldn't fit it in my journalism life. And then they said, well, how about a book of a uh, uh, hundred moments uh, in, in weather? And that could be sort of just like the worst storm, the biggest, <laughs> earth, you know, <laughs> and there's some of that in the book, but, but I decided early on, and my wife, who's an environmental educator, she helped me with it as well. We made it, um, it's, a, it's our learning journey. So it's a, it's a book of insights and moments when, for example, in 1088, the year 1088, a guy in China who was sort of there, there Ben Franklin, uh, named Shen Kuo. So he was an inventor, a scientist, he was a politician, he was in charge of some district. And he went to a village and the riverbank had collapsed uh, after a flood or something. And he noticed there was a bunch of uh, fossilized bamboo. He, and then he wrote about this a year or two later in his memoir, and he said, this is interesting. Uh, it's basically, there's stone bamboo here, but bamboo doesn't grow here. That seems to be, and then he said, he said, perhaps climate can change. And that sounds kind of inconsequential today, but it turned out that when you look back through the history of ideas in the Greek, ancient Greeks or China, China's ancient literature, until that moment, um, our understanding of the climate system was that it was tempestuous. You know, it did a lot of stuff, but it didn't change. It was a static thing. And he was the first person to articulate in words that climate can change. So that's in there. That's the year 1088. And then you fast forward, actually, uh, Ben Franklin, of course, invented the lightning rod. He was a scientist right. and, and inventor. Uh, that, uh, the and printer, don't forget. <laughs> yeah, and, and so many things. And he uh, so the lightning rod is in there, along with his experiments with electricity. But also he... Uh, he was a meteor. He was kind of a weather watcher. He actually was the first storm chaser, which I didn't know until we were doing the research for the book. Because he he wrote a letter to a friend in uh, the 17, 1750s saying he had visited someone in Maryland. He saw they were out riding, and he saw a, a whirlwind, 
a small tornado. And he jumped, he went on horseback, raced after it, trying to catch up with it, because he had heard that if you shot a gun through a, through a, uh, a whirlwind, it could it would kill the momentum of the thing. And he tried. He was trying with his bullwhip, his his horse whip, to to see, <laughs> see if he could see disrupt it. And, and so he was the first storm chaser. And and then of course from the, it goes all the way through. Uh, uh, you know our building understanding of climate change. So the ninety nine percent of our relationship with the climate system was a one way relationship. It did stuff, and you either got out of the way or adapted, put on clothing, or changed what you grew, or you know. But you, but you ask questions. Some people ask questions and just sort of went, hmm. Yeah. But didn't think that they could do much about it, right? It well, was more observational. Observation or an adaptation. And okay. then what happened, the yeah. big transition came starting in the 1800s. Slowly, scientists were looking at uh, the gases in the atmosphere and trying to figure out, well, nitrogen is inert. It doesn't do anything with heat. CO2, this is an interesting gas. It's a trace gas. 1856, a woman in the United States named Eunice Foote, who was an amateur scientist, I guess you'd say, she did some experiments with glass bottles with, filled with CO2 and with just air and with other gases, and the one and with a thermometer in the sunlight, and the one that had CO2 in it uh, had a much had a higher temperature. She report she reported those findings in a paper, but. In 1856, a woman couldn't present a paper at a science conference, so a man had to do it for her. And she was lost to history for, uh, well, for 100 years. And only recently um, did her work emerge as being the first work to demonstrate the properties of CO2 as a heat-trapping gas. And she wrote at that time, in 1856, she wrote, an atmosphere with more of this gas would have a higher temperature. 1856. And then now 1958 is when a scientist started uh, monitoring how much was in the atmosphere, how much CO2. And it's a tiny amount. It's 300. It was, at that time, 300 or so parts per million. So in a million parts of air, there's only 300 parts of this gas. And, but then he was tr- charting the trajectory year after year, and it's going up, 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 up. And that's us. And by, by in 1988, the book— Was he close in his predictions? Well, that was, he was a monitoring. He was just measuring. Oh, Okay. And it was very clear that we were on a sharp upward trajectory of that gas in the atmosphere, and it's linked to burning fossil fuels. It's, that's where it comes from. You're adding carbon to the atmosphere that had been locked away in the ground for millions of years as a lump of coal. It's an, it's, and it's a long-lived gas. That's what makes it special in a way. When you, once you liberate it from the ground, it stays in circulation forever. So it's building it for, for a long time. So it's building in the atmosphere. And the effect... The warming effect is building, but it's a very slow, subtle background thing. It's not like a sudden emergency. And you know, humans, you know, by the '80s, we had dealt with conventional pollution problems like Clean Air Act. Uh, one of the moments in the book is also England's uh, Great Smog of 1952. England was burning; London was burning so much coal, some of it directly in the house for heat. That the, right. uh, it was incredibly sooty pollution. Uh, several thousand people died when this. They had one of their classic fogs, but it, it was, was the Great Fog, or they called it smog. Thought, that was where the word smog <laughs> came from. And they they were starting to work on a Clean Air Act in the fifties because of that. And our Clean Air Act came about in the sixties and seventies. But then, so along comes CO two, which is the bubbles in beer. You know, it's kind of like, is this bad? It's in soda. It's it's the thing that plants thrive on, and it's been very hard for us as a, as a civilization to get our heads around that and. That to me, and 1988, as I said, is like the key moment when this 
global warming idea mm-hmm. became a moment. <laughs> a, a NASA scientist named Jim Hansen uh, gave testimony at a Senate hearing. Uh, Senator Tim Wirth from Colorado was leading the hearing. And, uh, and um, it was this, it got, that was its, its headline moment. That was the first time global warming became a front page story. And the same year, 1988, was when uh, another, a reporter at the New York Times, Marlies Simons, wrote a story about Amazon rainforest burning. It was vast fires uh, in Amazon linked to global warming. So it, it felt like a big moment. And right. that was when I started writing about it. And I brought along my actually, it's like an archival museum piece for those younger <laughs> younger listeners. There used to be these things called magazines yeah, that, right. that were physical. And, <laughs> that and, you could hold and, and yeah. turn the pages. And so uh, one side, the cover is my story, The Greenhouse Effect. This summer was merely a warm-up. This is uh, 1988. And what tells you how long it's been is, and I only recently got this on eBay, an actual physical copy of it. In the back, What's on the back cover? A cigarette ad. <laughs> so, yeah, in a, in a science magazine in 1988, it was normal to have cigarette ads. And that says to me a lot of things. It says to me, why wasn't I freaked out about that cigarette ad in 1988? You know, when people wonder about how, why aren't we more worried about global warming, I think back to my own thought process that there was a point when cigarette ads in a science magazine were not a remarkable thing. So but the package slow... warnings came in the 60s, right? So this, yeah, this was yeah. quite a bit after uh, yeah, what, which shows you again. There's, you know, it's. So what does that say? It says that uh, it takes us time to realize uh, to take a, to shift from something being unremarkable to being perilous. And the book includes an item from 1896. So remember, 1856, a woman did that basic thing: you know, CO2 in a jar heats up more than air in a jar. 1896, a Swedish scientist named Svante Arrhenius, he actually went on later to win the first Nobel Prize. They came in Sweden. He wrote a, uh, he did the, the first calculations of if you burn a couple of billion tons of coal a year, which was the rate already at that time, at the turn of the 20th century, that will warm the climate substantially for centuries to come. And, and he wrote that, but for his perception was it was going to be a good thing. And that, I point this out, too, to, to, as I, in writing this book about the history of our relationship with weather and climate, it's, a, it's been a valuable process because you see how, how you receive information or when, a, when some mm-hmm. new insight comes out, how you react to it is really a function of your, your history and your time. He, he was in Sweden, cold place, right. Uh, right at the peak of the Industrial Revolution when energy and everything was good. And, and the quote from him is really remarkable. He just kind of says this will be more productive crops and warming uh, warmer climates and, and and just think about that in terms of the transition that happened more recently and then think about the tobacco ads in the science magazine and you realize that it sometimes takes a lot of time for us to sort of shift um, shift what we think I've been uh, listening to old-time radio uh, the old-time radios dramas and comedies and so forth and and Doing so, just sort of to get a perspective, now that we're in the world of podcasting, what was radio like back then? Mm. And I came across a show that was sponsored by Camel Cigarettes, and it just floored me because the main point of the ad was that 35 out of 40 doctors <laughs> smoke oh camels, God. you know, and <laughs> I thought, oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> this was in the mid-1950s. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's like the ninety-seven percent of scientists now think global warming is important. Yeah, ex- we, exactly. Beware, be, beware, 
arguing a consensus case for something. That's, it, that's amazing. The book is called Weather and Illustrated History from Cloud Atlases to Climate Change. Um, it uh, has an Amazon page already, so you can mm. look there among other places. Uh, who's your publisher? Sterling Publishing. And the best part is my co-author, Lisa McKaylee, is my wife. <laughs> and uh, she uh, she's an environmental educator. So. And that worked out all right? It did. You know, we, we <laughs> Everybody approaches those with a little bit of trepidation. Absolutely. We were, you know, we we basically because it, because of the way we structured it, it's 100 moments we built a Google Doc list and we kept adding things and subtracting things and saying, well, but what about this? And even if we weren't in the same place in the same day, you know, say, hey, well, look what I just found. So it became kind of a exploration, comp- not a competition, but it was actually fun. And the, the artwork, too. Uh, we dug around and dug around for all the, the, this wonderful, um, it's, it's wonderfully illustrated. And there, there's the, the earliest picture of a tornado. Uh, it was in 1870-something. Um, so it was fun to do that, too, to build the visual, the visual aspects of it. I, I'm always interested in process. Uh, did you anticipate this to be a general read or uh, a textbook uh, for some level of education or, or both? Or? Well, the way I looked at it is in my first book, well, my first book on climate change came out in 1992. It was called Global Warming, Understanding the Forecast. <laughs> and, and I wrote a book on the changing Arctic climate which was for uh, middle sort of young adults called The North Pole Was Here. I, I went to the North Pole for the New York Times at that time. And, and uh, it's, a, it's a history of the Arctic and our changing impressions of the Arctic. And this one, you know, I could easily, and I probably will still write a book about how to deal with this century. You know, what do we need to do concretely to get through this yeah. century? Not just global warming, but loss of biodiversity. Um, how do you spread prosperity with the fewest regrets? Uh, but this one, I really wanted to step back and say, where are we? <laughs> you know, where are we on this issue? I'd been writing about global warming for 30 years, I'd, you know, won lots of awards. And, um, and I thought, uh, let's take a new approach. And I wanted to set what we've learned about climate change in the context of our whole big, long relationship with weather and, and, and the climate system. And that's when it's become more unremarkable to me that there's a lot of confusion and disagreement about this issue. That it's not just Exxon said X or there, there definitely are people who are trying to slow or retain our dependence on fossil fuels uh, for, for financial interests or, or other interests. But, but that's a distraction from the bigger history of where we are. We, we basically, it felt like a way to say to, to a general reader that, you know, this is, I'm not saying it's okay, but let's just pause and reflect on what we know and don't know and how we learned it process you mentioned process you know what is and and i think it's important that most of the items in this book show science process you know a woman in in new york state who was fascinated with the composition of the atmosphere and how do you test that and um a guy named uh uh, ted fujita who's the He's the one who the f scale for tornadoes is named Mm -hmm. for him he's the the f and he's f5 yeah (laughs) but uh after a plane crashed uh, at uh, in 1975 at JFK Airport, an Eastern Airlines jet killed uh, more than 100 people. Um, it was near a thunderstorm, but it wasn't obviously, there wasn't a tornado or something, and they asked him to come in and do like a CSI. <laughs> what took this plane down? And it, he went around, he flew over lots of landscapes where there'd been tornadoes, and he was looking at damage patterns on the ground of trees. And 
there were some places where he photographed where you could see the trees were all going out from a center point as opposed to a tornado leaves this kind of loopy right. trail of destruction. Uh, Up and down. And, almost and, like a, And sideways. It doesn't go in a straight yeah, line. Like, or when you're yeah. blending, when you're blending uh, frosting and using a blender, you see this little spiral kind of oh, right. loopy thing. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but there were these other patterns and he, he identified what are now called microbursts. This is where the air comes straight down to the ground that's what happened to that plane, and that, that was very valuable in uh, trying to understand and predict when air aviation would be at risk from, from uh, thunderstorms and that kind of thing. But he just had that inquiring, the capacity to take the problem and d- take it apart and put it back together again and come up with a new, you, a new idea. You went back and found some, to the general public yes. at least, obscure figures uh, in, in history, maybe even to the scientific world. Did you approach this project uh, like you would, uh, like a scholar, uh, uh, academic, or did you approach it like a journalist, or is there a difference? Um, Well, scientists and journalists, I think, share, ideally share a lot of the same traits, which is what's really going on here? And linear thinkers (laughs) in many respects. Well, in that sense, well, that's... My, I, I've written a lot about climate policy and, and in these, through these 30 years, and I think I was too linear in thinking about this as a, we grew up with pollution problems. We fixed pollution problems, and then along came global warming, and it felt like just another one of those things. And this is separate from the book. This is just my journalistic work on this issue. And I feel like it was mischaracterized. It's much bigger than that. When you have an issue that's... It, it, so profoundly linked to our energy norms. You know, fossil fuels are still more than 80% of the world's um, energy supply after 30 years of global warming evidence and other, you know, the other pollution impacts of fossil fuels. Right. They're great. We, you know, we, th- we thrive on them. And many of the countries of the world, like India, where I spent some time last year, are, have used a fraction of the amount that we do. And they will use more. India has tons of lots of coal, and they're going to use it until there's something cheaper and more convenient to put in its place. And that's different than a pollution problem. It's not like, in fact, some of their like I've been in houses. There are there are hundred million families in India that still cook on on wood every day, four hours a day. A woman sitting by a smoky fire, um, and that's killing millions of people around the world every year. Four million people are estimated to die young because of that pollution. And that's they need actually for them natural gas or propane LPG would be clean. A, it's awesome, and there it, it's and now it's abundant because of fracking, and and that's a good thing, you know. And this is hard for us if you're too climate centric and you miss that for a family who's poor, and there's this abundant gas uh, that now can be in a container that you can actually carry to your village. You don't need a pipeline. Um, that's a beneficial thing for the world to yeah, have that family less save your wife or your mother or for <laughs> sure yeah not to mention the hours it requires to collect the yeah. wood I, i've been writing about that for a while so it's like um but that's this the linear thinking part uh, and the talk i'm i've been going to be giving here is about um narrative capture where you get captured by a narrative and it's hard to break that pattern if you're a journalist or sometimes even scientists have a hard time getting taking a step back and saying, you know, what really is going on well, here? Well, t- t- tell me a little bit about that because you were with the New York Times for, what, 25, 30 years? Uh, 20 years, all told. 20 years, all told. Yeah. But, 
but you you wrote Environment. You were yeah. the head of Dot Earth. Uh, it, you you worked on major projects, won all kinds of awards. Now you're with Geographic. So so yeah. so these seem to be very different things, are they? Well, you know, and is this just part of your maturation on this topic, or? Yeah, I think you know. I there was a time I wrote a piece. Uh, 2016 for a couple of obscure magazines, uh, Issues in Science and Technology, which is the magazine of the National Academies of Science, uh, asked me to reflect on what I've learned in 30 years of climate reporting. And and um, when I look back at my career, it feels like I really it, it's one story. I, my journey is has been a learning journey. And as I said, I think there was a point early on when I just presumed this was a pollution problem. That was mistake one. Right, and I didn't know it at the time, and now I'm quite clear that. And then it was a d- diplomatic problem. We need a treaty, and the treaty that has emerged, the agreement that emerged in Paris, is the antithesis of what people had hoped for for 20 years, which was to have a treaty that was like a contract. You know, everyone signs it, everyone, and it would be binding, <laughs> right? Binding, and you know, the UN, someone would enforce those, and that became it became clear in Copenhagen that, that in 2009 this tumultuous moment when Obama went over there and China kind of pulled back and uh, that that can't be applied to this problem because it's bigger than that. It's different than we had a great environmental treaty, a global one on on CFCs, these other chemicals that erode the uh, ozone layer. And that but that was CFCs were a tiny part of the economy. They're not like CO2. They're not really linked to the source of everything that we, you know, Climate control, meaning you know how warm it is in your right. house, uh, uh, mobility, connectedness, refrigeration, <laughs> lighting. Uh, you know CFCs are an incidental thing compared to CO2, and it took until 2015, really, this Paris Agreement, where they got a big agreement. Everyone there was champagne and clapping, but the agreement is entirely voluntary. There, there's like few elements. Every we'll, five years, you have to check back in, that we'll, kind of thing. We'll kind of sort of follow this right. uh, if it's convenient. And, that, and it's, that's a success because it's the first time that that diplomatic process really reflects the shape of the challenge we face, which is a 100-year challenge. It took us 100 years to become fully dependent and flourishing on fossil fuels. The idea that there's a rapid way out is, um, has become, it's become clearer to people that this is a journey, not a, that this treaty process was uh, the beginning of a journey, not the end of a journey. You know, the hope was to have some contract. Everyone comes in a room, signs it, and, and it's just not like that now. Now it's a journey. For, and it says we will meet every five years. We'll review what you're doing on your own terms as, as a country, and um, we will all applaud our, and drink <laughs> our best champagne. practices. And, <laughs> and uh, we, you know, and, and, it, and at another level, uh, in reflecting on this, this is going to sound goofy, but recently, I think I've written this a couple of times, I began to feel it's like this ser- the serenity prayer, <laughs> believe it or not, uh, where, and I wrote this piece about, I have an ag- agnostic version of the serenity prayer, which is uh, know, <laughs> basically know what you can change, know what you can't, and, and know the difference. Uh, that, and science can help you, science is the thing that can help you discriminate what you can't change as well as what you can change. And a big chunk of that also is not physical science. It's not just about CO2. It's about us, the nature of the human being, the nature of, you know, we grew up in a hurry. 
we grew up with threats that were real time, in your face, local, and, and that's the antithesis of the climate problem. And if you, can th if you think we can somehow come up with some uh, cognitive or, or some process that can help us, well, it's like with dieting. I guess now you have apps that tell you, <laughs> you know, or, or the Fitbit. I, I, uh, National Geographic gave us all, said we could get Fitbits so we could know when we're not walking enough. <laughs> but that's, so maybe we, if we have like a global climate Fitbit, <laughs> we can know when, when we're, uh, but if, so it's like accepting the things, the aspects of this that you can't change it and, and thinking about what you can. And then that can be pretty empowering because if you're a teacher or an engineer or a business owner, anyone can play a role in a big question. But I haven't gotten back to National Geographic yet. The National Geographic Society, uh, two years ago, there was a lot of, there was a flurry of concern when Fox, uh, the, the giant company, not the news division, right, the cut a deal to purchase all of the for-profit parts, the, the, the channels and the books and the films and, of course, the magazine, the 100-year-old magazine. And what people missed, what I didn't un understand at the time was part of that agreement was they put um, more than $700 million into the endowment of the, the society. There's this National Geographic Society that's a nonprofit thing. Right. And they make grants. For 100 years, they kind of you know, we'd give a grant to uh, to someone to go into the Amazon and collect butterflies or uh -huh. or to take pictures of uh, New Guinea tribesmen. And then now it's mission-oriented for the first time. Uh, the mission is, can we develop a balanced relationship with the planet and with each other? Uh, and now there's a $1.2 billion endowment. to, And uh, quite a bit of that money can be spent on grants for journalism or communication or science if a scientist is going in the field to do a project, uh, there's, there's a grant for that. And that, that's kind of my mantra right now. There's a grant for that. <laughs> and, and, and a big chunk of it is for a developing country capacity and making sure, you know, you're not going to save elephants just by telling Americans that they're, they're in trouble. If, if, if Nigerian and, and if journalists in, in developing countries aren't engaged in Africa on how to tell that story in ways that are meaningful there, radio is, radio is an unbelievably uh, influential medium in places where one, a lot of people don't read or can't read, like sub-Saharan sub Africa. Two, where you have long distances, not everybody yeah. can. So radio is a, is a yeah. great medium. And, and so gra making grants to facilitate better storytelling around the world on these issues is part of what I'm doing there now. It's kind of cool. So I've moved from being one journalist trying to tell a big, complicated story to one of a small unit of National Geographic Society trying to enable a lot more storytelling, and that's really exciting. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders. These leaders will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research on communication concepts, issues, and problems. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability 
are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provides benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. You over your career and this issue, uh, both, uh, often touch nerves with people. And uh, I'm trying to understand the emotion that surrounds this. Uh, I know uh, you wrote a piece, Rush Limbaugh suggests I kill myself, uh, <laughs> back, yeah. in, back in uh, 2009. Yeah. Uh, can you explain the emotion around this it's it's it goes beyond logic it goes beyond economics it it's yeah. almost a visceral it's it's just a gut emotion that comes out with people yeah um that was an interesting moment i there one thing i learned really late in the game backtracking from that moment when it, it was a conversation i had had about Population actually, Jeff DeBelco, who's here at Ohio University, right. <laughs> he was involved. It was in this. at the Wilson Center. It was a I Wilson remember. Center discussion of population and climate and things. And I mentioned uh, something that I'd written about before, which is well, if you really care about uh, this, is carbon trading. I, I, I said in this po- uh, in this event that well, you know, if you really want to get serious about giving carbon credits for activity that cuts emissions, well, you should give credit to a family that might have uh, one, fewer ki- one fewer kids because an American kid is a high-emitting thing, you know. And it was all a thought experiment, and R- Rush saw some right-wing blog commentary on it, and he, you know, that's when he said, well, Mr. Revkin of the New York Times, if you really think that <laughs> people are the worst thing that ever happened to this planet, why don't you kill yourself? Just kill yourself and save the planet by dying. And Sounds that, like Scrooge. Yeah, yeah and, and he, he plays with – he knows – that he knows something that it took me way too much time to understand, which was when an issue becomes polarized, like global warming, gun rights, um, at a smaller scale, things like vaccination or abortion, abortion for sure, uh, yeah. Israel. Yeah, you know, people come at these issues through. Uh, well, there's a guy at Yale. There's there's science on this stuff that I had not really dug in on. There's a guy at Yale named Dan Kahane, who has a website for his work. It's called culturalcognition.net. Cultural cognition is basically when you've, most of the time on a, on a hot issue, when you think you're thinking, you're really just feeling. That, and he has this great line, I don't know if I can get it right. Based on his studies, uh, what, you, what you believe about global warming doesn't say what you know. It says who you are. And that's because he wow. found, well, I know, and, and <laughs> the way the back, the data show this because he did a bunch of work with others that shows that the uh, basic science literacy, like literacy tests on how much you know about greenhouse gases or the basic physics of uh, climate, um, the highest, the, the most literate people, the people who know the most about climate science are the people at both ends of the spectrum of a belief, those who are most worried and those who are most dismissive have the same level of awareness of the basics of climate science. And when I got, that work is actually in my weather book too, because that that struck me as a really important thing to think about and think about our evolving relationship with climate and weather. Because it says that, it says that any expectation that more information will change people 
is an overinflated expectation. And as a journalist, you know, who remember spent, I first dug in on this work around 2006, 2007, and I had so I'd already won all these awards for just right. telling the story of global warming. You know, I'd written two books by then. And then, and then just to run into this whole body of science that says, you know, information most of the time doesn't matter. <laughs> it was kind of like, oh, my God. And, and that's what is the point when you start to think about what do you do with the rest of your life? You know, what do you write about to have, a, have an impact and, or to feel um, useful? <laughs> you know, if, and part of what I was writing about from, there, from then forward, including on Dot .earth, the, the blog I started at the Times, was that body of not of understanding, you know, and I learned so much, and much of it is discouraging. Uh, th there's this concept of shifting baselines of perception, which is that you know when I was growing up, um, the Arctic was this forbidden, frozen place, uh, and if polar bears were in trouble, it's because we were shooting them too much. And then my sons are growing up in a world where Arctic shipping, shipping, sending ships across the open Arctic Ocean is now a normal thing. Uh, polar bears are increasingly in trouble because of the lack of sea ice, but that's their norm. It's not right. so. Uh, the older generation is like, "Oh, don't you should get worried," and and the younger generation is like, "Well, this is the new norm." And and those shifting baselines can happen in, in the other direction, like with tobacco, or right. you know, where yeah, yeah, right. you know, we have a shifting sense of what's appropriate or tolerable as well. And that's important to write about so that when people get locked into or if you see people on Facebook or on the evening news in this polarized discourse, you can you can step back. The individual ideally can sort of know, oh, this is that thing. They're just playing on my emotions. And uh, this doesn't really say much about the actual science of global warming. If I can build that awareness in a few more heads, that would be feel like a success. But but. Going back to your talk that we're trapped in the narrative, is that is that sort of what you were talking about, that you were trapped in a, a particular narrative? Well, yeah. The, well, the, the narrative— Just factually reporting the science? For sure. Yeah, that's—so there's the—you know, it's bigger than a pollution problem. Yeah. There was the <laughs> give them more science and they will come. They will come, right. Part, and that was, a, you know, the behavioral and social science said no. Understanding it's normal for different people to approach the same risk and come away with different feelings or decisions, that that's just part of the human process. Mm -hmm. I started digging in on another, another body of science, um, um, which basically says that that's how we've succeeded so well as a species, is what they call response diversity. Like if you have a and this is even true in ecosystems. The paper I first, there was some paper I read, I stumbled on when I was Googling to, to look at this issue. Well, you know, you got Bill McKibben, who's a great guy, a passionate journalist who started on this issue around the same time I did, but who's taken a certain course of action. You know, he wants to convince the world that renewable energy is the way forward. And he's been at it for 30 years, like I've been at it as a journalist for 30 years. And and then you got Jim Hansen, the scientist I wrote about back in 1988 who, um, at NASA who first made the point that greenhouse warming, he felt it was detectable then. And he moved into activism as well. And they, they've actually chained themselves to the same fences, the White House <laughs> and the, uh, some coal companies, you know, Bill and, and Jim. But if you ask Jim Hansen what to do about it, he has a completely divergent menu from the one of his friend Bill McKibben. He wants, uh, he, he sees nuclear as the only technology that can take us forward 
to a decarbonized econ uh, energy system in time to be meaningful for global warming. And he's written disparagingly about renewables. So that says to me, when you hear all these fights, we well, just have to defeat those climate denial denialists, that if you work forward, you're looking, well, you know, even these two guys who have been sort of the heroes of the, this climate movement, you know, have divergent, completely divergent notions of what to do about it. Then that says, this is not just about kind of the power people and the disempowered people. It's about, again, diversity responses is inevitable. And maybe that's a good thing. But, like, are, but are we getting diversity of response say within this administration seems like we yeah. just get the denial uh and then we get uh, deregulation deregulation oh, sure. de deregulation so uh how does one the average person deal with that i mean you you're you're yep. going okay i understand the science i sort of get it yeah uh i i see some things that my summers are hotter or, or yeah. I, I've suffered through a hurricane or whatever. Uh, so I've, I've felt it. I, so I understand it. But now everything's going away. All the controls yeah. are going away. Well, I wrote it when I was at ProPublica that year. Um, I, I wrote a piece when Trump pulled the plug, when he said he was going to pull yeah. out of Paris, which takes time. It hasn't actually happened yet, but um, it may not happen. I wrote a piece doing the same thing. I stepped back and said, Trump, uh, the Trump administration can do a lot of damage to our environmental regulatory apparatus, which has been playing out in a big way. But the, good, <laughs> the thing to recall about global warming, that particular thing, is it's way bigger than one president. And, and I pointed out some of the weaknesses in the Obama administration's approach had been – had looked sweeping. And it was. It was through all these parts of government. It was – doing whatever he could do with an executive branch move. Yeah, with executive orders. But there, but Congress it, wasn't going to do anything. No, and I wrote about it. I don't think I ever articulated this in print, but it was kind of like building a very fancy, impressive sandcastle on a beach where it's time for the— The tide to come in. <laughs> not just the tide to come in, but you have to leave the beach now, and, oh, here comes some kids playing soccer. Oh, <laughs> or, okay. or just who are mean and, and, you know, don't like your— They kick it up. Yeah, and, it and so it was very impressive but also very vulnerable. And to me, it's important to re remember that because that, that how, how big a step was that then if it was knowingly vulnerable? You know, if it was just sort of this impression, well, if, if Hillary Clinton came in, she could keep building the sandcastle. But without— we're not ultimately our politics is such in America that without Congress on board, you can't do something that's durable. And that's that's become very clear vividly these last four years. But it also means that the climate problem, again, is much bigger than one president uh, or two presidents even. It, I did in that piece, uh, I asked some experts to chart out what would be the biggest wedge of differences in emissions of, of American emissions of greenhouse gases if between a Clinton a presidency and a, and, a, and a Trump presidency, and it's a tiny sliver of the global pie. And 98% of the growth in emissions is coming in developing countries, not here. We already, we've, our emissions have been down because of natural gas from coal, and that's, um, so it's kind of like the, uh, a different administration could do a lot of damage to things that matter for conventional pollution or oversight of water. Um, but on climate and energy, it's it's so big that it's hard to kind of do a lot on the downside or a lot on the upside without 
buy-in. And that's, again, this is part of the serenity prayer aspect of me saying, let's keep an eye on the ball here. You know, if Do you, what you can. Yeah, and by the way, the other reality that people missed, um, you know, is that in the run-up to that election, uh, another team at Yale they do periodic surveys of American attitudes on global warming, energy, ethics, all kinds of stuff. And they found that um, uh, liberal Democrats, that little sliver of us, uh, global warming was number six on their list of priorities. So that says a lot too. You know, the other reality of this is it is a background forcing, this background push in a warmer direction that could lead to Momentous changes if things keep at the level they're at. There's also deep uncertainty in it. How hot it's going to get from a certain buildup of this gas is still highly uncertain. And that that uncertainty can be exploited in the same way Rush Limbaugh was exploiting our (laughs) cultural divide. You know, if you're in the media or if you're a politician or if you're someone like Scott Pruitt, you, you grab onto that uncertainty and put it in the foreground it's not hard to build a picture of, oh, we don't know, let's just talk more. And, you know, and if you're um, deeply worried and you're the kind of person for whom uncertainty is uh, unnerving, or if you're campaigners for a decarbonized energy future, you definitely put the uncertainty in the background. But it's there. It's a real deal. And it's kind of, I've written about that. And that gets me in, in everyone is shooting at me sometimes for that reason. <laughs> Well, that probably means that you're doing your job. Well, yeah, people say people say the middle is like safe. Mm. <laughs> not, not, not really. I've got one more question to ask you, and, and um, so bear with me because mm. it's it's probably convoluted. Uh, I know you're a musician. You compose. You you yeah. you, you play. Uh, music is and the creation of music and the composing of music is a series of steps is it similar to what you do in in writing are are they is the process the same or are are they different <laughs> well ideally a song is also nice and concise and you you could tell even by my answers to your questions i have a hard time being concise <laughs> um, so that we all need editors. At yeah, some point. ideally, uh, to me, music is a great counterpoint to the journalism I've done. You know, I started playing guitar when I was seventeen, so that was well before I was a journalist. And but I didn't start writing songs until around nineteen ninety. Um, I live in the Hudson Valley. Uh, that's when I moved to the Hudson Valley, and uh, up, up by West Point. Uh, right, right, yeah. and I, would be, I was neighbor of Pete Seeger, uh, who older listeners will know and. Many will. Um, You've got a admire. great picture on your Twitter page. Yeah, uh, of you and Pete. Playing. Yeah, and most of my songs are not about the environment. They're they're just about aspects of life that are quirky that don't fit into a story, but some are. You know, there's some. I wrote a song about the history of Arlington National Cemetery after I'd, I was on the train in Washington, going past, and I heard people say, uh, "Getting on the train after a funeral, they're all dressed in black," and and someone said that the preacher had noted that uh, the cemetery is running out of room. You know, and it is. And so that struck me at the time as maybe a story. But then I went online and I saw that Baltimore Sun had written an epic story about this. And so I, I, but I kept that line rung in my head. Where I kept thinking, where will they go when there's no more room in Arlington? And that that line ended up being the key line in the song. 
about Arlington Cemetery. And I've written a song about global warming called Liberated Carbon. It's like a three-minute history. It's like this book. You know, <laughs> it's, it's our learning journey on fossil fuels. And, and so sometimes it spills in. And I wrote a song about the death of a coal miner. It was a great-grandfather of a bandmate of mine who had died in a coal mining accident. But it was a very strange day. A bird had flown in the house at dawn. And, and the, the wife had said, don't go to the mine. And he went to the mine and had a, died in a, rail, a, train, a coal car accident. And that felt to me had to be a story. I mean, a song. <laughs> so I wrote a song about that. And so it's all part of the same mix. You know, the the blog was I did at the times was multimedia. You know, I put in video right. or you were one of the pictures. First. Yeah, and and words and a song just feels like an extension of that whole thing. And it's uh, the other great thing about music is uh, it it crosses a lot of those cultural boundaries. The more we can do in life to find a common element between us and another person, even when we diverge on something, the better. And my band, uh, I had a friend in the band who was a rabid anti-fracking guy and anti-nuclear, and I'm not. And But we play some great music together. <laughs> and, and we, you know, Actually, Pete Seeger and me, too, same thing, different, different views, but enough common views that we find a way forward. One last question. With all that's going on and all that's going on in this administration and denial taking a greater prominence, you hopeful? <laughs> People ask me this a lot. and I, I bet. I've reflected on this. I Basically, I have a diurnal cycle. I wake up hopeful <laughs> almost every day, and uh, then I usually go to bed a little bit tempered, if not downcast. But I'm one of those people who just wake up the next day and say, okay, here we are. It, and it's kind of like that Groundhog Day movie. You just keep, keep – or uh, what's the, 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 yeah, that great it, fish, you know, keep on swimming, keep on swimming, the, uh, the fish in um, Nemo. Um, and, and, and other people have other reactions, and that's okay. And not only is it okay, it's like it's worth celebrating to some extent. Our wacky human journey so far has been this mix of you've got your – Go it aloneers. You've got your group huggers. You've got <laughs> your innovators, and you've got those people who are foundational people. And if if we were all go it aloneers, we'd all we'd fall off the same cliff. If we were all group huggers, we'd never have a new idea. And um, so that's just celebrating some of that while working working with what I call a mix of urgency and patience, like sort of getting up and just. Facing all that noise on Facebook or, you know, social media around us on TV, um, finding a way to deal with that, too, so not get overloaded and not get too caught up in those arguments that are really a distraction from some of these core issues is really um, an important practice. It's almost like meditation or something, being able to pull back from that stuff and say, wait a minute, um, there's a way forward here. Let's just pause and reflect or turning it off <laughs> and just shutting so down. in that sense i i am i'm optimistic um tempered optimistic andy thank you very much appreciate your time thanks for having good me good luck on. with your book thank you appreciate it today we've been talking with award-winning environmental journalist author and musical composer andrew revkin about his new book and the status of the climate change debate in america Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. 
Please subscribe to Spectrum at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast directory. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.